This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 598. The amount of data that we can analyze at a very, very granular level is amazing. You know, we can really dig into what the customers are doing, how they're using the product, how they're using their, their card, we provide a debit card, where they spend their money, what is the mix of that, of that spend, how it evolves at the time. And we have a lot of data just on, on how they effectively drive their financial life based on that. When you understand the trends, and then you, once you can model them, you know, that gives you a very big insight into what the company's future would be. And you can play with those variables and say, okay, if we can push the customers in this direction, if we can acquire slightly different type of customers, this is the impact that it would have on, on, on the company. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Tibol Falcanis, CFO of Varro Money. Yes, it sounds like another fintech. At the same time, Varro Money is also a bank. The world of banking is changing, and Tibol Falcanis helps us understand how. Our conversation begins after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. So I'll begin by just saying hello. We're speaking with Thibaut Fulcanis, CFO of Varro Money. Thibaut, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. You had an interesting background, so we've been looking forward to this. And let's just begin there, ask you to look back for us and share with us uh, some of the different roles you had and what were those experiences that you believe uh, prepared you for a finance leadership role? What comes to mind? Yeah, when I, when I think about that, I think uh, there were a few you know, stepping stones in, in my early career that prepared me for this year for role. The first one is you know, I was just fresh out of college uh, and I studied in Paris at a high school, which is called HEC, which is and I was specialized in finance. Uh, I was very young. I, I finished my, my uh, 
uh, grad school, I was 22. Um, and so I joined Booz Allen, which is an American uh, well-known uh, advisory uh, company. And, and I had the chance to join their M&A team uh, in Paris, um, working with the head of the m &A department for all Booz Allen, which was Martin Wallenström at, at that point in time. And what was wonderful in their approach is that they were really linking not only the m and execution, but also linking that to the bigger strategic picture for the company. So that learned me how to step back, not just be focused on you know, the details of the execution, which is, of course, important, but really to look at, okay, what is the strategic background of an acquisition and how do you position that overall? And I think that framed my whole career when I, I really learned how to step back all the time and look at the bigger picture. So I think what was one of the first defining moments the second one, I was, you know, in France, you had to do your, your military service or civil service uh, at that point in time. And I did a civil service working for a French company abroad. That's called what we call cooperation or VSNE at that point in time. And I was sent, I was hired by Paribas, who was, a, a, you know, the lead merchant bank in France at that point in time. I was sent to their a small subsidiary of theirs, which was BNP Paribas, or Paribas at that point, Paribas Luxembourg. Uh, the, the good thing about that is what it was a very small bank, about 400 people, but it had all the activities of a large bank. So it has, you know, a treasury department, it has a commercial banking department, you know, private banking, retail. So you really had in you know, a very small entity everything. And I was there to basically build their FPNA function. Uh, so that really taught me what a bank is, how it works. And I remember my CEO at that point in time saying, okay, we, we need you to build that FPNA function. But he gave me a book. And he said, you know, look at that book. That, that could be interesting. And that book was called Breaking Up the Bank. Uh, and that was the basis of fund transfer pricing. It was a long time ago, but probably, probably 30 years ago. Uh, and it was really throwing the basis of fund transfer pricing, which is now everywhere. You know, when you manage a bank, you, you effectively always use fund transfer pricing. But it, I discovered that, and I and I tried to put that in place in uh, in that small entity, and and that was really a again a very a fantastic experience because it first it learned me what banking was and all the facets of it, and second it also learned me how, okay how do you go deeper into understanding what's happening in that bank by putting in place that, that fund transfer pricing. Uh, so that was probably the second defining moment. The third one uh, was uh, uh, at the, the group level of Paribas, so I, going back to Paris after my Luxembourg experience. And I was uh, lucky enough to be, to be part of a, of a team which was called Financial Management. It was a very small team. And that team was, was in charge of uh, the structuring of all the emitted transactions of the group, including at that time, uh, you know, the transaction from the, the private equity arm of Paribas, which became after that an independent uh, firm, which is called PAI, which is a very, very big private equity firm in, in, in Europe. Uh, it was also in charge of, uh, you know, all the internal legal reorganization of the group and, and in charge of tax planning. Uh, so I was suddenly thrown, you know, from uh, from my previous experience into into big finance, uh, and I remember my first assignment. It's you know my 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 boss came to see me and say, okay, you have to assess uh, the feasibility of the sale of our private banking business, and what will be the impact of that. 
and I was just coming from Luxembourg. I had no clue what what the private banking business was, and I had a week to cover that. And it it was it was a, a you know big of a shock, but I really learned you know through this experience, but also through others, how to take a big hairy problem and to transform that into small small digestible pieces that you could model or you could frame. And that again was super important in my career because that's something that I'm I'm using a lot. Each time you have a big issue to solve, how do you Effectively put that into small pieces, analyze that in in a lot of uh, uh, with a lot of accuracy, and and each piece you can probably model it or you can you know support it by hypothesis when the big picture is much harder to to model from from scratch. So that's uh, that's uh, I think the three big moments which created the basis of of my experience. Uh, you know, the, uh, always going to the big picture understanding in depth you know how a bank is working and then making sure that when you have something big to analyze how do you cut it into pieces so that you can effectively understand each pieces and then go back to the bigger picture well thank you for that nice overview and some great examples I want to ask you how many years in were you at uh, paribas so i i was uh I was I, I worked thirty years with with Paribas, um, twenty nine years exactly. Uh, so a long, long part of my career. The last twelve years were with Bank of the West, which is their retail subsidiary in the U.S., which is a regional bank, uh, about the twenty second largest largest regional bank in the in the U.S. So when you make that transition, what led you to come to the states exactly? So I was sent by Paribas, by BNP Paribas, then because that it had merged with BNP. Uh, to effectively take care of their subsidiary here as CFO. Uh, and that was my first operational job as a CFO of a, of a large subsidiary. Okay. So the intrigue here is building because I know that you've uh, uh, sat in quite a few executive roles then at the Bank of the West. After becoming CFO, you became a vice chairman of com commercial banking and consumer finance. You are chief operating officer role. Um, and th this next chapter that you open, and I, I think you opened it in 2018 or thereabouts, uh, you join Vera Money. Now, I don't know uh, too much about Vera Money, so I'm going to ask you straight up, tell us about Vera Money. And maybe we can, um, after learning about what this company is up to, we'd like to go back with you and learn what attracted you to the opportunity. But let's begin by just asking you, what is Varo Money? What does it do? And what kind of institution is this? Yeah, so Varo Money is a challenger bank uh, offering online banking to consumers in the US. Um, it's, uh, what I love about Varo Money is that it has a very clear mission, which attracted me to Varo, in fact. That's really the reason why I joined. It's really helping everyday Americans make uh, progress with their financial lives. So, you know, Varo doesn't charge fees. The, we offer early access to paycheck. We help our customers save through save your pay, save your change. Uh, we have no fee of a draft, uh, you know, free Varo to Varo instant payments. So that's a, a set of features which are really useful when you want to manage your money and avoid that you pay the fees that the big banks will be charging you if you don't have a lot of money. So that's uh, when I came to the U.S., uh, and I was struck by two things. The fact that the healthcare system is completely broken 
and the fact that a lot of people are not banked or are what we call underbanked. And I was trying to find a solution for that. And so when I met with Colin Walsh, the CEO of, of Varo and founder of Varo, and he told me his story and what he was trying to do, I said, well, that's exactly what we can do. I mean, with a digital solution, we can lower our costs very significantly and effectively can serve all those customers who are not served by the big, not served well by the big banks uh, in a very efficient way. So that's that's was really the, the story behind that. So I, I think a lot of our listeners would find it intriguing, this this latest transition that you've made, however, because there you were with a pretty sizable uh, regional bank for as many years as you were to finally become one yourself. It's what the area is known for. It's what people talk about. It's where the glamour maybe perhaps is. Uh, was that part of it or what would you what would you tell us? I think it's a mix of, of two. I think that you know when you when you are uh, managing a big regional bank, I mean the, the regional banks in the US are suffering as, as you may know. I mean uh, they're under a lot of pressure and, and when you manage a, a big bank like that, you are managing more attrition than growth and you are managing more regulatory you know projects like uh, stress tests, CCAR, those type of, of joyous things rather than really managing a company and 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 uh, helping your customers. So I think it's, you know, when after a number of years and we had to do a, a number of cost reduction plans and I spent a, a number of, of, of my years at, at Bank of the West, you know, working on those stress tests and establishing a bank holding company, top holding company for the PNP Paribas Group in the US, which was a huge project. So you're not having the impression that you are building something. And so that's what I, I really wanted to go back to because you know I had the chance in my earlier career to to have to, to build you know from team from scratch or to 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 be able to you know build the strategy of of the group in uh, in uh, emerging countries by leading a lot of acquisitions. For example, I, I probably you know led about twenty acquisitions worldwide for 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 the BNP Paribas Group. So I wanted to go back to that growth mindset. And and I was trying to find a way to, to do it. So when the Vero opportunity came, I mean, it was a, a perfect fit for me. So it's a good. It was a good match for you. At at, at the same time, for someone who uh, built their career for thirty years um, inside the same uh, business, uh, to jump to this smaller environment is quite a switch. So it was it, it was definitely a huge culture shock. You know, the, the first thing is that I was coming from a position where I had about 3,000 direct reports when I was CEO, uh, and I was coming to an entity where I had three people. Uh, and so when, when, when we had to do something, you just couldn't say, oh, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's appoint this guy to, to do that for me, and then let's see what's coming out. You say, okay, oh. Okay, there is nobody around me to do it. Okay, let's do it. So I, I, I have to tell you that to retrain a little bit on Excel, uh, to because my my skills were a little bit uh, you know old, uh, but it's it's fun, uh, and and you really have when you go to a startup like that, you really have to be uh, super reactive, super nimble, uh, and so for example, when you when you you know when you have a big sheep uh, to to drive, I mean it's. Uh, you you can only turn very slowly, 
and you do your you know your budget every year and and it's you know and of course things can evolve a bit a bit faster when you have a crisis but when you're in a startup you know it's it's you change things all the time you test and learn all the time and so to give you an example when i arrived at varo we were at the version 76 of the financial model you know a year and a half after we had version 118 so to give you how fast we iterate and we change the model and we tweak and and we and all that by experiencing with our customers and seeing what resonates what does not that's that's one big thing the second thing that struck me was how focused uh, we were on customers when you are in a big institution you know at the top level your customers are very far from you i mean you can try to meet some customers from time to time but you don't really understand what's what's happening in the front line uh, and so i think that that's a big big thing you know when at varo we have the customer uh, comments on the product and all that on our on our cell phones every day so we know exactly what's happening you know exactly the pain points you know what they want uh, and so that's directly taken into account uh, into what we call the okr so you know the pro the uh, the objective of an next quarter and what we should develop, what we should change in the product, uh, which you know we basically develop in six weeks what a company, a big a big ship, will will do in in a year, you know, uh, because by the time you arrive at a decision point in a in a big corporation, uh, just the time to get a meeting will take you six weeks with with the relevant partners, <laughs> so it's a completely different world. So effectively, for me, it was hard to adapt you know to that nimbleness because you say well i, I just approved my budget are, are we changing the budget two months after you know that's also the first time in my life that my board told me when i presented the budget no you're not spending any, enough money yeah <laughs> which wow <laughs> usually so no you should cut this and you should cut that i mean it's it was a completely reverse situation which is also fantastic i mean the problematic of managing hyper growth because we are really growing super fast uh is is uh that you have again you have to adapt to to these imperatives of super growth i mean it's and the challenges are not the same as when you are managing a, again a slow moving institution it is an interesting place and time for finance people who are focused on the customer experience more than ever before i guess these tools exist that allow sort of the finance mindset to be focused on that engagement and understand how it leads uh to transactions and to uh to customer growth um so tiba i don't know if you feel like you have everything you need to measure of that engagement if you're saying hey this is great but can't we do this a little differently have you yourself said we need to? I heard about this tool that allows us to do this. Uh, can we can we look into that, please? And um, and again, I, I love the story about you being um, using Excel again, and you know being a little rusty and bringing up. I have to believe there are a lot of tools that suddenly uh, you're very hands on with, um, and and wondering whether there's a better way we can do this. Yeah. So I think that. Yeah, I think that. Uh, uh, you know the the incredible thing with with uh, a company like Varo is that the the amount of data that we can analyze at a very very granular level is amazing, and so you know we can really dig into 
what the customers are doing, how they're using the product, how they're using their, their card, we provide a debit card, where they spend their money, what is the mix of that, of that spend, how it evolves at the time. And we have a lot of data just on, on how they effectively uh, drive their financial life based on that. So uh, for, on the finance side, this is incredibly helpful because once you understand that, you, when you understand the trends and then you, once you can model them, you know, that gives you a very big insight into what the company's future would be. And, and you can play with those variables and say, okay, if we can push the customers in this direction, if we can acquire slightly different type of customers, this is the impact that it would have on, on, on the company. So it, it gives you a lot of, uh, of levers that you don't have when you stay at the very high level uh, because you don't really understand what is driving your customers and how they effectively again behave. Uh, so I think that's, uh, for me, it was a big discovery to be able to, uh, to get to that level of granularity and then step back. I was mentioning at the very beginning of, of our discussion, step back and really understand, okay, what's happening there? What are the trends? How can we understand them? How can we model them? And how can we change them if we need to change them? So, you know, to give you an example, a very critical example for us is Varro is making most of its money on interchange. Interchange is a commission that a merchant is paying to uh, to the banks when a customer of that bank is using its debit card with the merchant. Um, and of course, that that interchange varies depending on the type of transactions, depending on, you know, for a restaurant, for example, it will be much higher than for a grocery store. Uh, it, it also varies depending on whether you enter your PIN when you are in the store or whether you do that by signing uh, the, uh, you know, on the machine. So it, it has, there is a lot of, of different uh, aspects to internet. So to understand how our customers are spending their money, where they are spending that money, what are the trends on that, uh, how you can effectively uh, impact the fact that they would be using more signature than PIN because you get higher interchange on that, but it doesn't change anything for the customers. So these are the things that we are playing with and trying again to understand the underlying trends. And so we have a lot of now been able to develop a lot of models around that, which, which are really helpful for, for, for the function. Well, uh, I'm here in New York and it's shelter in place. I suspect uh, you as well, if you're in the Bay Area, certainly. Um, can you just give us a, some sense of uh, your priorities now in this new environment uh, until the pandemic uh, hopefully uh, yields somewhat? Yeah, so so you know, as you can imagine, we are we are doing a lot of uh, of stress testing on our data. You know, what's happening if? So of course, COVID has as well. Unfortunately, some dramatic uh, you know impact on, on on people's life and and some sometimes very tragic. Uh, overall, when you look at the impact on the on the American population, it has completely shifted the way we we consume and the way we live, at least for a period of time. Uh, so for us, we try to understand those trends. We try to understand, okay, what's happening? I mean, are people shopping more online? Yes, we, they are, you know. And for us, it's probably a positive because when you have a card not present transaction, again, the interchange is higher. Uh, what, where are they spending their money? And you see that, you know, at the very beginning of that crisis, you had a big peak in groceries, uh, you know, people just going shopping, making sure that they have the food and the goods that they needed to live on. 
So that's, that's really, we saw that in our data. And then people are going more to a normal life and starting to consume a little bit more online still uh, and, and differentiate, uh, well, and, and uh, sorry, and expand their, uh, their spend. So that's, that's really interesting to, to see that in the, in, in the data, in real life data. And, and again, what we are doing now is stress testing all that to say, okay, what are the scenarios? We, if that uh, pandemic is, is staying for a few months, if it's, if it's uh, opening a recession or not, and depending on the length of that recession, and what is the impact on, on our customer base? Thank you for uh, giving us some insight to your your thinking there and your priorities. Uh, we're up to what we like to refer to as our finance strategic moment question, where we ask you to just pick one for us from uh, your finance career where your lines of sight gave you uh, the opportunity to change uh, the direction of the organization or avoid a risk or pursue an opportunity, whatever comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment. You know, when I, when I think about uh, my career, I mean, one moment which was really defining was the big crisis, the 2008 crisis. Uh, because at that point in time, everything was undefined. You didn't know what tomorrow would be, you know. Uh, we were, you know, at that point in time, the Bank of the West was was had a lot of uh, Fed fund fundings, uh, and and they draw they, they, they dry up, you know, instantly. Uh, so that's the kind of thing which is you have a model that you are you have been applying for years, and suddenly that model is collapsing. And when I say model, it's not only, well, of course, your overall business model, but also the models that you are using to to support your business. You know. How you analyze bonds, how you, uh, those type of things. So everything was collapsing, and that taught me a, a very important thing: is that you can, of course, rely on model. If you don't understand deeply what's happening on the ground, you know, beyond, behind, and beyond those models, then you don't really understand your business, uh, and and you you cannot react as fast. So that was probably one of the first learning that I had. Say, okay, let's always try to understand what's really happening with the numbers and not just rely on models, which will tell you something. Uh, the second thing, which, uh, no, at that point, I had just arrived in the US. Uh, so that was my first real uh, operational CFO role uh, and in, in a slight, well, quite big subsidiary. And and so what also I had to to uh, to, to deal with is, Finance is, is the reality check. You have, you know, in, in bad times, uh, you know, the business line will say, no, everything will be fine. Uh, don't worry. Yes, we have taken some losses, but, you know, going forward, that should be okay. But you have to be the reality check and you have to be the bearer of, of bad news. And sometimes it's not easy. I mean, you have to say, no, you know, you, you lost 50 million over the last three months, you probably will continue to lose based on your portfolio, probably continue to lose that 15 minutes. So how do we how do we effectively manage that? I think that your role as a finance manager is really to make sure that you step back again, uh, you understand the whole issue and you challenge your, your business line to say, okay, is it really what we see in the data? Is it really the trends that we are seeing? And, and push them to recognize what's happening. Uh, whether it's in a crisis or in good times, because in, in good times, they'll probably try to have a smaller budget as possible, you know? So, so it's, it's probably, uh, you can adapt that to, to any circumstances, but, uh, 
I think that you can be a, a great support for the business lines in your in your company, as long as you play your role of I challenge them, but I'm also here to help them find the solutions, and we can find the solutions together so that at the end of the day we 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 well we exit that that crisis in the best way possible. The other element where that I realize also is that the sooner you react, uh, you know, the, the better the outcome will be. So in the big crisis like 2018, I mean, in 2008, sorry, uh, the, it was so important to react very quickly and to, you know, secure your funding, uh, you know, cut your losses on bonds, those type of things. I mean, if you had done that early, that would have, you know, that would avoid a lot of pain afterwards. And so that's also a lesson learned that that was really important for me. So what, what I take out of that is, again, Always try to really understand deeply what's happening in your business. Don't hesitate to challenge your business lines, you know, your exec team, and go deep into, again, uh, putting them in front of the reality and say, okay, how do we react to that? How can I help you react to that? And what, what, can, what measures can we put in place to, to deal with that? Great insight for us. We appreciate it. When we return, Thibaut Fulcanis will be entering the mentoring round after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Say hello. We're with Thibaut Fulcanis. We're about to enter the mentoring round. Thibaut, we'd like to begin by asking you to think back when you first uh, became a CFO. And we want to find out uh, what is that piece of information you wish someone had given you at that place in time? So for these other aspiring finance leaders who are about to enter that room or enter the office for the first time, was there a piece of advice you'd like to go back in time and give yourself? Yeah, and it, it goes back to what I, I said before. I mean, it's I think the, the best advice that, that I could have been given would be always find the story behind the numbers. Meaning, meaning really, again, go back to understanding what are what is causing that? What are what are the you know the trends that you can see in your numbers? What's what explaining the evolution of your numbers? I think that's that's absolutely critical, and and I'm always trying to do that. But it came over time, you know. So so I think that to be a good CFO, you have to be a storyteller. You have to say, okay, this is what's happening. This is why we see the, that trend. This is what we expect going forward. Based on what we what we are seeing today, so so you need the technical skills, of course, but but beyond the technical skills, you need to again fully understand your numbers, tell the story behind them, and and you have to tell your story, you know, to to all the the constituents and your investors, your CEO, your exec uh, executive executive team, your regulators, if you have your employees, 
it, it's really important to to be able to craft a story and and uh, and express because people will relate to a story it's much more difficult for them to relate to a number i i think uh, that's a really great point and and the one i uh, think we've been drawing out of finance leaders is the fact that uh, so often you're called upon to tell that story in front of the board or maybe in front of investors. Uh, but when you discuss the numbers with a broader audience, uh, and that's, uh, let's, you know, we've been talking about the broadening role of the CFO, your employees, your customers, as the CFO reaches out to that broader group of people, how they explain the story you know, needs to change. Needs You need to use different devices to explain it. You need to illustrate it as you did so nicely for us in talking about your journey, I think. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's a, you have to adapt the way you tell the story, not the story itself, because at the end of the day, the story is reflecting your reality. But you have to adapt the way you tell your story to your audience. And with the board, you will go probably in much more detail as that than you do with your employee base. I mean, but, but the, the, the storyline is the same. Well, the, uh, we also like to find out a little bit on the personal side of our guests. And we, we ask the question this way, is there a personal habit that you have or some part of your daily routine that you've kept up over time that you feel in some way has contributed to your professional success? Yeah, it's not really a routine. I mean, for me, you know, I've been riding horses forever. Uh, and and I was competing in France when I was younger. I was doing j jumping and dressage. And so, and I continue to ride every week. And so there is a lot of similitude between riding and managing a team. You know, you have to deal with your horse. I mean, and, and your horse can feel bad one day or can, you know, can be great. Uh, I think what is important is that it's it's gives you well. If I try to summarize that, the first thing is the team spirit. You know, you are not alone. I mean, if you are competing alone and you don't try to reconnect with your horse and and bring your horse together with you, you will fail. You know, and if you it's the same thing with your team. I mean, if you don't have a great team and you and you are not trying to bring them along with you on your journey, you you will fail. Uh, so that's one thing. It, it, it's teaching you humility. You know. Because you, you, when you when you ride, you, you you fail a lot, but it's that you know that pattern of okay, I fail and I try again, and I try again and I try again, and I think that's especially when you, when you compete. I mean, it's it's a it's a humility school. I mean, <laughs> definitely, you also have to have very a, a very clear communication with your horse, as you as with your team. I mean, if you don't if you don't instruct your horse very clearly to what what you should be doing, you know, I can tell you the horse will not do what you want. So it's the same with a, a, a team. I mean, if you don't tell them, okay, this is what we need, this is what we are doing, uh, this is how we should do it. I mean, you won't get the result that you want. So I think that's that's also a a very a very uh, important uh, lesson. And then you have the rigor. Of of you know riding a horse, especially when you do dressage, you have to be very rigorous and very precise and very and that's the same in finance. I mean, you have to be super rigorous. So it, it's a lot of lessons learned from uh, from uh, uh, my life experience, and and uh, I think that it's uh, well, there are a lot of parallel as I was describing. Wow, that's a great one. We haven't heard that one before, and it's really interesting how horses 
truly are wired with us and and the signals we send them and they send back very interesting we're gonna we're gonna want to ask you about a book if you have a book recommendation there's a book that i'm going back to all the time on fine on the finance side which is which is called corporate finance theory and practice it was written by a form, my, my a teacher that i had in college uh, who unfortunately uh, died but but the book has continued and it's and is re-edited and, and complemented every year by a friend of mine in fact uh so and i also had the the privilege to work with that that professor at paribas he was uh, one of the head of the ma department and was also teaching and and it's uh again it's mostly m a and investment oriented but it's it's really uh frame all the problematics you may have around m a or investment in a very, very synthetic way, in a very good way. So, you know, that's how I learn how to bring when I when I look at a, a difficult analysis in terms of investments. How do you bring everything back to cash flows and basic cash flows? You know, it can be twenty lines of different cash flows, but at the end of the day, you go back to your cash flows, and that's driving your analysis very, very clearly. So that's a, I think that's a great book. Uh, and again, I'm uh, if it's for me, it's my bible. Okay, well, we're always pleased to get a book that we haven't gotten before. So there it is, Theory and Practice. We're up to our final question, which is where we get to ask you to look forward for us and tell us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. So, you know, that Varro is, well, you may not know that Varro is the first fintech to to have obtained the operation to become a bank, a full bank, national bank. And so, you know, in the next 12 months, my, my, my first challenge is let's open a bank, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which, uh, and, and that's also what attracted me to Vara. I mean, you don't have the occasion to open a bank from scratch every day. Uh, so it's a bit of a dream come true. You have to build everything and, and you, you can also build that with all your experience. So you don't have the old legacy and, you know, the old system and so on. You can build from scratch with, Okay, let's design something that would be really great for you know for a finance function or for a risk function. So that's that's a, a fantastic opportunity. So yes, we'll be opening our bank, uh, and and on top of that, we'll be opening a bank with a few million customers. So we are not just a de novo opening, you no, know, just fresh. We already have a few million customers. So we'll be opening a bank, and we'll, we we'd better have that bank work and both systems work very well from day one. So that means that you have to have an asset liability management system in place, a regulatory reporting system in place, and of course your general ledgers, your consolidation, consolidation tools and so on. So that's a big endeavor, but that's a lot of fun. Tibor Fulkanis, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you, Jack, it was a pleasure. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts 
to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.